0: Editor in chief at the New Books Network, and just a warning about the following interview. We had a bad phone connection, and so the audio is a little bit rough. But in any case, I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. And welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, hosted by Dara Anjaria out of Bombay, India. Our guest today is Justin Jones, lecturer in South Asian History at the University of Exeter. And he's going to be talking to us about his book, Shia Islam in Colonial India, Religion, Community and Sectarianism. This is as much a book about Lucknow and Aoud, the region of which it was the capital, as it is about Shiism. The Nawabs of Lucknow created one of the world's most significant post Safavid Shia kingdoms. The kingdom ended with the 1856 deposition of Wajid Ali Shah. But Shiism, though deprived of the state patronage, which had enabled the growth of an entire cultural ecosystem, survived and evolved, engaging along the way, not just with the other sects of Indian Islam, but with the world at large. Good morning, Jackson.
1: Good morning.
2: Um, thank you for doing this for the New Books Network, and it's a pleasure to have you talk to us today.
1: Well, no, thank you very much for inviting me to speak. I'm um, very pleased.
2: Oh, that's great. Um, just to start
1: off with, could you just tell us something about yourself and you know your research? Sure. Um, well, I'm currently a lecturer in history or South Asian history at the University of Exeter in the UK. Uh, my research is mostly linked to Islamic history in South Asia, looking primarily at the late 19th and 20th centuries. Most of my work has been centred really on North India, so I've done most of my field work in UP, cities like Lucknow. Aligarh, and so on, and looking at the reformist tradition in that area. So, um, my book obviously was published um, about a, most of a year ago now, um, so that research is sort of completed, though I still continue to make an interest in this subject, and I'm working on other areas concerning Islam in that region.
2: Um, so, uh, what's the book about? Uh,
1: the book is basically about the Shia community of North India. Um, it's, it looks primarily at the region of Lucknow and the surrounding region of Awadh. So it's primarily a sort of it's a kind of local history, looking in depth at a particular religious community. Um, the reason for picking that Shia community as the basis for analysis is that that region was under Shia rule um, between the 18th, well from the 18th century up until the, the rebellion of 1856, 1857. Um, so the community there was always one of the most influential in Indian Shiism generally, and certainly considers itself to be a kind of, if you like, a kind of leading bastion of the religion in the subcontinent So what the book does is it picks up, um, if you like, the story of Shiism after 1847, when, of course, you have then the demise of the old Shia rulers, the Nawabs, um, the subjection to colonial rule. And so the sense has always existed in scholarship that Shiism thereafter goes into decline. You know, the, the passionation networks dry up. Um, there's no longer the kind of state support for Shi'ism that there once was, and so there's been the sense that it, sort of, it goes into fading. And I've tried to argue instead that what you see is a kind of reconstruction of what Shi'ism is and how it works as a religion. Um, so the book's kind of central theme is how Shi'ism turns from this kind of, if you like, a kind of state-linked religion, one about the ideas of governance, one about a sort of sense of high culture, of Sharif norms and so on into something much more systematic and much more universalistic. So the idea of Shiism existing uh, as a religion, linked to but quite identifiable from the surrounding um, cultural setting in which it exists. Um, So that's one of the big themes of the book. And the other one that's tied in with that is a study of um, sectarianism, which I sort of take to mean different kinds of shia sunni conflicts. And the sense has often existed in literature, of course, that sectarianism in the colonial period is somehow it's somehow incidental or it's not that important. Because, of course, historiography has always emphasized Hindu-Muslim conflict as being the kind of prime, um, if you like, the most consequential form of communal conflict in colonial India for obvious reasons. But I've tried to instead look at some of the, the theory that's been applied to communalism and look more in-depth yeah. at shia Sunni conflicts and how they evolved. And the kind of theme of the book is that you can't separate the study of Shi'ism um, um, sort of the internal working of the changes within Shi'ism from sectarianism. So it's about the links between the two, which I'll sort of talk about later in the interview, I guess. Um, so it's got this two-point approach of looking at Shi'ism and the kind of reconstruction of religion, but also looking at the way in which that entrenches or systematizes forms of conflict as well. Um, uh, going back to you
2: know the start of the book, and you mentioned that the Shi'a community was associated with, uh, you know, well the ruling house in... Uh, well, Lucknow, so how did that actually happen
1: how sheism?
2: yeah because as I understand uh, you know the state of Lucknow or let's like, say so the Nawabs, the they were primarily you know white size of the Moguls yeah so and the Moguls were basically sunni Muslims so how did they manage to you know achieve a position of as, you know, <laughs> being influential oh
1: well, that's that's long before the book starts so essentially yeah. the the, um, the state of Awadh evolves. It becomes a kind of vassal state of the Mughal Empire from its foundation in 1722. So it's indicative of the kind of wider fracturing of the Mughal Empire through the 18th century into various regional states. Um, so really the kind of, the, if you like, the political peak of Awad is in the late 18th century. And after that, it essentially becomes more and more under the influence of the East India Company. And obviously it's sort of drawn into the same kind of treaties of trade and protection as are many of the regional states during the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, I guess of most relevance for the book um, is the evolution in the early part of the 19th century of the state of Awad into a much more theocratic Shia-influenced state. Uh, So under the later Nawabs, especially um, kings like Hamjad Ali Shah, You have the establishment of a Shia judiciary, you have the construction of Shia schools as a way of influencing the actual governance of the state. And so the state has moved away from being a sort of more kind of courtly, mogul-influenced Persianate state into something much more distinctly Shia um, in its workings. And so that's why, that's sort of why the story is interesting, because on the point of annexation in the 1850s, you've got the state being under the most explicitly Shia political influence that it's been under since its creation, really. Um, and so the book is taking up that question of what happens to, for example, the Shia scholars who've been built up as jurist consults, as state educators, as trustees, as courtly advisors, and what actually happens to them when they're disenfranchised of their own roles. Um, and the basic argument that the book puts forward is that they are quite successful in, if you like, recrafting their roles and their purpose. They evolve from being these state functionaries Instead, of has been the kind of representative of the community. So they've become engaged with the Shia community. They talk about representation, the need for keeping Shia institutions alive. Um, they start to reach out to the community through public forums, um, through sort of social organizations, what are called undermans, um, and in terms of a kind of sort of lay proselytisation as well to so, so instruct the public on the tenets of their religion. Um, that's, that's a very roundabout answer to your question, but basically, the book is, is taking up that question of what, what happens after the collapse of this Shia theocracy, this, this sort of Shia state, um, and sort of how that evolves into a, a more kind of public and a sort of a, a kind of engagement with the urban public sphere as a way of keeping the religion alive.
2: Uh, so what impact was the impact of, you know, the annexation of ours? I mean, uh, you do mention that there's a certain financial impact, but uh, what you just said, that there wasn't that much of an adverse impact, culturally speaking.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, the impact is huge. Um. I mean, to start with, on the point of annexation, she is an, undoubtedly goes through a huge decline, uh, which lasts for really probably a good 20 or 30 years. So, I mean... In even the city of Lucknow, you have the taking over by the colonial state of many of the key religious institutions. You have the, um, of course, many of the old, the, the old elite who had been sort of very much tied to the state, were basically became pensioners of the, of, the, of the colonial state, and so they sort of get drawn into, you know, they, they lose all of their wealth and their social significance. Um, so you do have this decline, um, but it's really from about the 1880s when you start to see much more of a reconstruction. So to give you a few examples of how things change, you've got the formation of madrasas, explicitly Shia religious schools um, in the state. Um, there have been Shia religious schools in ours, but most of the significant ones had closed down on the point of annexation, because, because the madrasas were there to serve the state. So, when the state ceased to exist, the madrasas ceased to exist as well. So the ones existing from about the 1880s are very different. They're founded on... Um, if you like, kind of voluntary donations on the activities of particular scholars in the city. Likewise, the mushkihids in India, again, these have been state functionaries. Um, their role is very subdued from 1857. So many of them return to their, their khuspas, their kind of hometowns outside of Lucknow. Many of them actually go on long spells of learning and ziarat in Iraq. They, they essentially go into a kind of self-imposed exile because the political climate in North India is so hostile. Um, so it's from, again, back the 1880s that you start to see them being able to recraft craft some of their old significance, not just through madrasas, but also through public organisations, through their new access to printing, and so they're recrafting their role as these kind of public, um, public teachers, public spokesmen, um, and sort of crafting a new kind of temporal relevance. So... There is this decline, but what the book really takes up is not the decline so much, but the kind of the, the forms of the reconstruction from about the 1880s um, in the in the construction of new religious institutions, um, and with that kind of new forms of public and popular religion as well, which come out of that. Um, as well as kind of a new, a whole new kind of network of social institutions which start to come up from about the 1880s. So, for example, you start to see the formation of new organizations, the most important of which is the Shia Conference, which comes up in the 1900s, attached to that is this whole array of Shia foundations, you know, charities, schools, um, things like kind of muharram associations, which regulate religious festivals for the Shia, things like um, charities like orphanages, um, groups for the protection of groups like widows and so on. So you have this huge kind of network. Uh, I call it a process of anjuman building, really, taking up this, this idea of kind of, you know, public organisation and social service, which was quite common to many communities and nationalist groups around about this period. So you've got Shiism being completely reconstructed, and it, it, the, the, whole kind of, the whole look and the whole working is something very different from that that you see pre-annexation. So this is why I sort of talk about how we can't talk about this as a mere religious revival. This is about the reconstruction of something completely new um, and something much more systematic.
2: Um, so you mentioned a few minutes ago that, you know, after the annexation, a lot of these scholars either went back to their hometowns or they went, you know, to Iran for further training. So how did this actually affect uh, the links of the South Asian uh, Shia world with, you know, the Persian Shia world? Because you've written a lot about that. Mm,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the arguments that I take up in the book is this idea that, oh, how to put it, A lot of literature on Shiism in the 19th and 20th century has taken it in a very kind of global or transnational mode of working. Um, I'm thinking in particular of, well, not just Juan Cole's work, which has been the most influential on, of course, Indian Shiism, but scholars who've worked on, say, Iraq, like Chibli Mallet, who talks about this idea of a Shia international, that the Shia world is completely linked up by these these international networks, and in the 19th and early 20th centuries they're primarily centred in southern Iraq. Uh, the city of Najaf in particular, which is a big centre, not just of learning, but of pilgrimage as well, because of the the shrines there. The argument of the book really is to say that these global networks aren't everything. Um, There's always been this slight sense of seeing the Indian Shia as existing on the periphery of the, if you like, a kind of global Shia network. And I argue this isn't really the case. Um, and what we see in the period that I'm talking about isn't just a kind of internationalization, it's not just a story of globalization, but you've got instead this, this kind of counter-development uh, of a kind of Indianization of Shi'ism, a much greater kind of consciousness of what it means to be an Indian Shi'a, and for Shi'ism to work within its Indian setting. Um, so there's this sense of the Indian Shia not existing on the periphery of the Shia world, but actually having a kind of autonomous and meaningful role within a kind of global religious network. If you see what I mean. So one example again to come back to is the idea of the madrasa. Now in in the early hours, the madrasas were primarily built upon an educational prototype linked very strongly to Iraq what we see in the late 19th century is the new schools actually have a much more Indianized curriculum. A lot of the books they're teaching from are of Indian genesis, the the, the teachers within them are primarily Indian, and the networks of students visiting them are primarily Indian as well. So there are these connections with Iraq in particular, but these schools are really sort of constructing, if you like, an autonomous form of Indian Shiism in that part of the world. Likewise, things like popular religion in India. We have in the Late 19th, early 20th centuries, a huge renewal of a religious custom called Taziyadari, which is the parading of, um, if you like, um, models of, of tombs, uh, Hussein's tomb during Muharram, um, is processed through the streets of towns like Lucknow. Uh, many of them are, are sort of buried in, in these sort of mock, um, um, you know, recreations of, of the Karbala tragedy. So these are very distinctly Indian customs, and during this period, they're actually being exported around the world by Indian indebted labourers and so on, but they're very much associated with the kind of Indian Shiism. So again, you've got this, this renewal of a distinctly kind of indigenous form of Shiism. Um, what other examples? Likewise, things like um, Baf endowments. Um, you know, they, these, these huge endowments left behind by the Nawabs as ways of sort of ensuring the ongoing funding and, um, and patronage of Shiism. A lot of money had always gone from Awad to Iraq, but what we see during this period is that Indian scholars in Lucknow are trying to put much more Indian influence over how how the money is spent. So there's almost this kind of attempt to ensure that these funds are Indianized. They are run by Indian scholars, um, and they're kept for Indian students' pilgrims in Iraq. So I guess the point of the book, or one of the points of the book, is to show that Shiism isn't simply this kind of global religion tied together by transnational networks and left from Iraq. It's something much more complex. And the story of this book is that as this new consciousness of Indian Shiism comes about, you have this kind of counter-movement. So we shouldn't just think in terms of these transnational links, but in terms of the kind of reinforcement of distinctly, um, you know, sort of, of regional um, understandings of the religion as well.
2: Um, so you could say that uh, Indian Shias were actually pretty influential because you mentioned that they accounted for something like 3% of the total population. And, um, I mean, so in a way they kind of formed, I don't know, a ruling elite or something. And this was probably not the case with you know, Shias worldwide, well, except obviously for the Persian world. So, I mean, how did this you know, actually affect the position within the Islamic spectrum?
1: Um, within India, you mean?
2: yeah within India or even you know maybe globally, i mean, how were they perceived you know the Indian Shias because they were obviously you um know, pretty powerful sure. in um
1: i mean the book the book sort of takes up this question of i mean again, this three percent figure this idea of the minority um now it's, in the kind of you know the census that the British government took from about the eighteen seventies uh they're very kind of rigid on working out who is a you know who is a Shia, who is a sunni and you know who is a who is a Sayyid and who is a Sheikh and all the rest of it, um, part of what the book is arguing is that these statistics only really mean something in a colonial context. Um, I mean, prior to 1857, Shiism hadn't been that easily identifiable as a sort of segmented, easily compartmentalised religion, because of course it had been always very much associated with the state. And that meant, on the one hand, that a lot of, distinctly Shia customs had had a much wider cultural influence, even outside of communities who didn't see themselves as explicitly Shia. Um, so to give you some examples, things like the Muharram festival, which has always been this kind of bedrock of Shia identity and Shia self-understanding, that in India always was and still is participated in by numerous communities. I mean, in the region of, you know, in, say, Lucknow itself, um, many Hindus participate in this, some Sunnis do as well, in some of the kind of rural townships of Awadh, um, you even have kind of Sunnis taking charge of Muharram. So it was never, although it's of Shia origin, it was never an exclusively Shia festival as such. It was always something much more um, cosmopolitan, much more ecumenical. Um, the same applies with the veneration of the Imams, Imams like you know Ali and Hassan and Hussein. Now, many of the Sufi orders in India, groups like the Chishtiya, the some of the big Sufi tariqas, the the orders which which exist and thrive across the subcontinent, they trace their origins to the imams, and many of the saints in India are direct descendants of the imams. So even you know Sufis and Shia tend to be quite sort of separable in terms of who they are, but you've got these these common cultural roots, and in, if you look at a lot of the literatures coming out of these traditions, a lot of the customs, there are these huge overlaps. Um, So I guess one of the things that the book indicates is that the idea that the Shia are somehow separate and exclusive is something that comes out of the colonial context. Um, Not just because of the demise of Shia power, which means that, of course, the cultural influence doesn't have the same resonance that it once did, but also because there is this attempt to separate out these customs and cultures and traditions and all the rest. And the colonial state is doing this, but equally the population is doing this as well. Um, So that's why this 3% figure becomes if you like, something of a, you know, it's very much a new construct. It would have very little meaning before the 1870s, 1880s, when these things were put in place. Um, and so as sort of a result of this, you do have this attempt among Muslim communities to separate themselves and work out who they are. You know, there's this attempt by the Shia to, um, if you like, to shore up their own identity, to make sure their traditions are quite quite separable and identifiably different from Sunni traditions. Likewise, among Sunni communities, you have, you know, an attempt to sort of separate those influences from the scene of being of Shia origin, particularly among Sunni movements like, say, the Deobandi movement or the Borezhi movement, these, these huge reformist movements coming up in the, in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. So this is where you start to get these kind of, the, these schisms and this sense of difference coming about between these communities. Um, and so these, these are really quite new to the period in question. Um, these these, are are conflicts and questions and debates which are coming about in a colonial context rather than a pre-colonial context Um, and so I guess in regards to your question in a roundabout way I guess this idea of the Shia as a minority is something that is quite new um, in this period it's something that had very little meaning before the 1860s Um, and much of the book is trying to work out how the Shia start to sort of how they try and work out their own, um, their, their own strategies in this context of being a minority. How they attempt to shore up their own religious identity. How they try to protect themselves as a minority and how they attempt to define themselves. But these are debates which are very new um, in the colonial period. Um, so, I
2: mean, what does the colonial state actually attempt to, you know, organise and codify all the many kinds of Islams in India? I mean, uh, probably that actually affected, you know, I don't know. Intersect relations, uh, you know, within the different Muslim communities in India. Because like, I'm thinking, for example, in terms of law,
0: I mean, a lot of Muslim
2: law that was codified. I mean, it was probably based on, you know, Hanafi Sunni law, and these guys probably have had their own customs and things. So, what was the impact of, I don't know, the colonial state trying to, you know, superimpose itself?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, absolutely. I mean, the colonial state always has this. Um. As always, it tends to see India in the truth that we know of well. It sees India as this sort of innately kind of religious and unchanging and spiritually focused society. So, through the through the 19th century, you have the you you do have these sort of quite intense attempts to work out what's different between the Shia and the Sunni. Um, I mean, you're quite right about the idea of war, which I, I don't talk about in the book. I'll happily talk about this, uh, but. Hanafi, uh, but, of course, Hanafi law becomes the kind of bedrock of the whole personal law system that the British are constructing through the 19th century. In terms of how the British actually use the Shia-Sunni divide, um, of course, in one sense, the British see it as less important. I mean, um, of, of course, the main sort of concern for the British in North India is understanding the Mus- you know, what, what they see as a Muslim community in North India. Um, And so the movements in the late 19th century, like the Aligarh movement, for example, all of these are attempts by the British to separate, if you like, a kind of Muslim minority from the the wider kind of Hindu majority. And and it sort of shows how they see the Hindu-Muslim divide or difference as much more consequential than the Shia Sunni ones, to start with. The same, of course, applies to the separate electorate system, which emerges in the late 19th, and particularly in the 20th century. Things like the Morley-Minto reforms and the Montague-Chelmsford reforms. So you've got the shore up the, if you like, at the attempt to shore up a Muslim political identity in India, which which is a bit well documented, thinking of Francis Robinson's work and all the rest of it. Um, and of course, you know, the the strategy here was the idea that the Muslim minority in India would be quite easily co-opted by the colonial state because it was a minority and because it could, it always had these sort of links to, sort of, you know. Mogul elitism and governance and all the rest of it. What the book really argues is um, that this wasn't the whole story. Um, and there, there was a much more complex process going on than merely this attempt to shore up a Muslim minority identity, which is what's been documented. And what the book argues, especially in its third and fourth chapters, is that the colonial state at various points starts to dabble with the Shia-Sunni difference um, for political reasons. So much of the colonial state had always played off this idea of Hindu-Muslim identity and had played on particular communal fears as a way of shoring up Muslim loyalty in North India. So they started to do the same with the Shia-Sunni difference. Uh, so I'll give you a few examples of this. Um, the 1910s in particular were a decade when you have the construction of a kind of Muslim agitationist politics in North India. So you have the move from, again, Stephen Robinson's work. The move from a kind of loyalist old party group who dominated Muslim politics to a what is called a young party, a, a younger agitationist group who are much more closely allied with a kind of Congress ideology of uh, protest and opposition. Um, now the colonial state starts to see that there's sort of capital to be earned out of the fiercely different here. So, for example, in the 1910s, you have um, you start to see a Shia-Sunni row taking place in Aligarh College. A number of Shia students and staff in the college start to say that the college is primarily Sunni in its orientation, that Sunni staff and students should have a better settlement there, that the college can't kind of protect the rights of the Shia minority. And the colonial state really jumps on this bandwagon, and they start to help the number of Shia in Lucknow set up an alternative Shia college, um, now, this Shia college is eventually established after the, after the end of the war, so in about 1918, 1919. Um, it's set up under this language of, you know, sort of proximity to Aligarh, that the college is essentially created on the same sort of educational model, this sort of modernist education as Aligarh was. But the actual sort of way in which the college is set up is obviously one that is designed to stoke Shia, Sunni antagonism, and to separate um, sort of the Shia project of um, educational reform and consolidation from the kind of Aligarh model. If you look at the language of a lot of the administrators and many of the Shia scholars who are setting up this college, it's quite obvious that the Shia college is set up in a kind of, as a kind of, you know, antagonizer rather than some something set up on the model of Aligar itself. Another example is the whole language of jihad and anti-colonial agitation, which is coming about in the 1910s. Now again, the colonial state is quite sort of proximate to this, but the colonial state is quite um, successful in ensuring that many Shia disassociate themselves from, for example, the Kandahar mosque agitation of 1913, which was this huge anti-colonial movement in UP. Um, and I mean the key example perhaps is pan-Islam, uh, which is growing in these years. You have the beginning of the pan-Islamic agitation at the hands of the Anjir brothers, Muhammad and Shoaikh Ali you have the Khilafat movement emerging around about 1918-1919, which is, you know, the, to date, the biggest anti-colonial Muslim agitation in India. And it's usually been assumed that the Shia were sort of involved in these, and to a degree that's true. But on the other hand, you have this very powerful Shia counter-reaction to these movements. Uh, many many Shia associations in North India at this point are distancing themselves from the Ali brothers. I mean, the irony here is that the, you know, the Ali brothers themselves were of, Partially Shia background, but nevertheless, and despite many Shia being involved in these movements, you have this um, this very distinct Shia counter reaction to Panesar. So you have certain Shia newspapers put forward the um, you know the idea that British rule in the Middle East is far preferable to that of the Ottomans. Um, You have these rumours being spread that the Ottomans are, if you like, kind of overtaking the treasures of Najaf and Karbala, so they're sort of very anti-Shia in their actions. Um, so that you have these Shia protests being organized against the Ottoman Empire and Ottoman rule in these territories. And even in the Kalafat movement, I mean, the, the Shia do participate in this, but they participate very late. It's only really in about 1921 that the Shia in North India are, are involving themselves in the Kalafat movement, uh, which is really when the movement is starting to go into decline itself. Um, so Shia entry is very late. Um, and prior to that, many of the key the Mujtahids, you know, the highest scholars in Shia Islam, um, are opposing it. In the 1920, they tell, they tell their community not to involve themselves with the Qalafat movement. Um, and again, this is something that is done quite heavily with British support and co-option. Um, the, the British are very keen on keeping you know, loyal Shia politicians on side. They tell the Shia that the Shia have no concern with the Qalafat movement, because this is a, essentially Sunni-led agitation inspired by Sunni ideals. Um, And they do this very successfully. So the point here is that the British do make really strong capital out of the sheer silly difference in the 1910s um, and even into the 1920s. So this is a story that's not really been told. It's really been subsumed under the usual language of, you know, the construction of a Muslim minority identity and at points the kind of loyalty of this Muslim minority to the British state as the best guarantor of Muslim minority interests. But I argue that actually... Something much more complex is going on here. And that at that point, the British are using the Shia Sunni difference just as successfully as they're making capital out of the Hindu Muslim difference at a particular points and in particular local contexts. So, you
2: know, this just, it's just occurred to me actually. Uh, you were talking about, you know, the Khilafah movement, and obviously the Shia wouldn't have participated. But there was this big effort, you know, by the Indian National Congress to sort of, you know, also get into the Khilafah movement, you know, the sort of Hindu Muslim solidarity how did actually
1: this have an impact on, you know, Shia and Hindu relations? Shia Hindu relations? Um, this, yeah, um, this isn't talked about a great deal in the book, but I'll elaborate as far as I can. Um, I mean, the, as a general political rule, um, the, the Shia tend to associate themselves much more closely with the Congress than with the Muslim League. Um, now this is obviously not this this is much more pertinent after the Kalafa movement because of course the Muslim League and the Congress are working together quite closely um, from about 1916 until the end until sort of 1922 or so. Um, now thereafter the Shias start to pull themselves more closely to the Congress. Um and this applies actually particularly after about 1937, when of course the you know the League and the Congress essentially completely Sever their ties and act as, as opposing political parties. Um, so, key Shia political leaders, um, individuals like Vadim Hassan, who was a big Congress politician, um, carry the, the Shia closer to the Congress through organizations like the Shia Political Conference, which is essentially a Shia political body, um, which ensures that through the 1940s, the Shia in the UPL largely keep a distance from the Muslim League and associate much more closely with the Congress. Um, now, this is always, of course, very fractured and divided. Some of the key Muslim League politicians of the 1940s, thinking of individuals like the Rajah al who was sort of the League's major benefactor, they were Shia, but they were very much tied to the Muslim League. So, you know, as always, you don't get a sort of clear answer to this, but you do get the sense that there is this huge fracture and the sense that many Shia maintained a loyalty to the Congress long after uh, the Muslim League has sort of, um, you know, if you like, sort of homogenized its grip on the the wider kind of Muslim vote. In terms of relations with Hindus, which is obviously quite distinct from that, um, you do at points have moments when the Shia do try to align themselves with a nominal Hindu community much more closely, if you like, as a kind of counterbalance to a Sunni-dominated Muslim majoritarianism. So to give you a few examples, at various points um, in the 1900s, 1930s, 1940s as well, uh, you have the Shia starting to sort of build these strong links with the Dalit community, the untouchable community, which is kind of an, an unpredictable link, if you like. Um, but for example, um, through the 1910s and 1920s, you have certain Shia mujtahids taking up the, uh, the course of the untouchables, saying that we need to, you know, we, we, it's perfectly legitimate for Muslims to dine with untouchables, to share the same wells and so on um and you know so I guess by extension associating themselves with the kind of Gandhian language of uplift and, and communal betterment um which is of course is growing at this time. By um, about the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties you have many Shia politicians talking in if you like about their um, talking in a similar language really to, to to the demands of untouchables for their own political recognition and their need for Sort of a, a kind of a, a political entity or an electorate system within a kind of within the sort of eventual constitutional makeup of India. Now, I don't really talk about this in the book as much as I would have liked to have done for want of space, really. But this this Shia untouchable nexus is perceptible at various points, and of course, it's quite unusual because the Shia are simultaneously trying to associate themselves with the idea of being of, of being. If you like, of very noble origins. most Shia in North India are Said, they 're direct descendants of the prophet. Um, many of them are continuing to really craft themselves in terms of the language of aristocracy um, and their their like, kind of high birth, which they 're using to, to distinguish themselves from the wider Sunni community so this attempt to associate themselves with the kind of downtrodden in Hinduism um, is is quite unusual and something quite interesting, and it really shows. Um, I mean, if, if anything, the reason must be because the Shia are trying to craft themselves within, as if you like, a kind of oppressed minority within Islam, in the same way as the untouchables are trying to craft themselves as a kind of oppressed minority within Hinduism. The implication being the same, that the Dalits need to be considered not as Hindus, but as a kind of separate community, whose rights need to be protected by the state outside of Hinduism. Likewise, the Shia are arguing that they need to have their rights protected by the state outside of a kind of wider um, of Muslim political identity. Following on from that, you have into the 1930s, 1940s, various sort of examples, so, again, this isn't in the book, which is, which is a shame, but uh, you know, there wasn't space, but things like, you know, Muslim, sort of, Shia support for the Cal Protection Movement, um, which happens in the 1930s, which, um, again, it's politically opportunistic, but it's an attempt to sort of separate the Shia political agenda from a Sunni one. Um, and this is taking place around about the time of, of what I talk about in chapter five of the book, which is the Tabla agitation, which is this huge Shia agitation which takes place in the 1930s. Um, and during that, um, many sort of Hindu spokesmen are offering their support to the Shia as well. That the Shia the Shia ought to have the political rights to maintain their sort of religious customs and so on. So you do at political at particular point see this sort of opportunistic link between a kind of Shia political identity and um, a hindu or at some points even an untouchable political identity but these links tend to be very fluid and very opportunistic so they're not consistent but they're ones that arise at particular moments when when the shia community is trying to assert its own need for political recognition
2: um, that's fascinating i was just wondering uh what are the links of the north Indian shia community with you know the shias in the south
1: again that's very interesting um and it depends, on, depends really on which side you ask from. Um, I mean, of course, in South India, you have, a, um, again, a, a hugely interesting and important Shia minority, which is clustered around the old sultanates of Bijapur and Golconda, and eventually the state of Hyderabad, which, while it wasn't a Shia state in the same way as Awad was, nevertheless had a very strong Shia influence, and its cultural institutions, or Shia cultural institutions there, always were and remain very vigorous. Now, the links are, um, again, they're sort of interesting and complex. And again, because this book is very much a kind of North India-centred study, it doesn't look at them in quite the same way, but I'll elaborate as far as I can. The North India Shia always try and see themselves as if you like the kind of guardians of Shiism. So what always really surprised me about the sources I looked at for this study were how, how far the sources... Well, firstly, how, if you like, neglectful they are of specific Shia, of specific reference to the Shia of the South. Um, it's actually relatively rare to see detailed kind of interrogations or you know studies of, of of Hyderabad, for example, in North Indian religious texts. But at the same time, the North Indian texts are talking about this of. Uh, the Shia community of, of, as being Hindustani, you know, and they're, they're using this language of a Shia form, which, of course, is a sort of term which indicates kind of wider Indianness. So the point here is that the North Indian Shia are, if you like, sort of talk about themselves in this language of, of, of Indianness, of, of being a complete sort of subcontinental identity. At the same time, they're not really engaging the South in any substantive way. Um, what we do occasionally get is the sense of traffic between the two. Um, I mean, after the annexation of Awad, you have a lot of the, you know, the North Indian staff of the court move to Hyderabad and, and take up work there with the administrators and the officials of the Nizam. Um, so those links sort of maintain uh, their, their work. You have a lot of Hyderabadi scholars who sort of visit North India for, you know, the, for essentially for learning. Again, the, the madrasas discussed in the book um, seem to have quite a number of Hyderabadi students and students from all over India. Again, you've got organizations like the All India Shia Conference, which is essentially a kind of, you know, a brainchild of, of, of the Shia in Lucknow. They call it an All India Conference. They have some representatives from Hyderabad, from Chennai, from from, from Bombay, from wherever. Um, but again, the conference is largely kind of North Indian in its orientation, in the, in the, in the general kind of catchment area of its constituents, in the kind of themes that it's taking up. So I guess the point of the book really is how, how the North Indian Shia are trying to craft themselves as being representative of a wider Indian Shiism, even though those links are quite incidental and quite sort of fragmented. Um, And so, in a sense, what it shows is the kind of, if you like, the interrelations between, if you like, locality and nation in this sort of local context, you've got the, you know, the the Shia working on their own kind of, um, you know, their, their own sort of they're the kind of Lakhnawi networks, the sort of the the, the renewal of Shiism in Awad. But this language of calm, of kind of a, a regional identity, is overlapping very heavily with this sense of a national Shiism as well. Um, so in a roundabout answer to your question, um, the North Indian Shia were quite um, all, always kind of talked about themselves as being Indian Shia rather than simply North Indian Shia. And this was partly partly for sort of you know the the expedient political reasons of, you know, trying to represent Shiism and how you need to be a national community in order to do that. But it's also about a kind of wider, kind of lingering sense of Lucknow's superiority and its kind of role within a wider Shiism. So you have this residual sense of Lucknow being the kind of the the centre of North Indian Shiism, even when perhaps it's becoming a much more complex story, you've got these other regional assertions of identity.
2: Um, yeah, you mentioned out here, I think, in the bits about the Aligarh movement, that they were not all that happy, you know, about
1: Aligarh college, and they didn't, like, you know, they were quite ambivalent about it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, this is a story that hasn't really been taken up substantively in much literature, because the whole, the usual kind of Aligarh narrative, thinking of, you know, the work by, you know, David Elyveld and so on, has been that Aligarh shored up this... Um. If you like this kind of cross you know, this sectarian Muslim identity, um, you know, the idea was that Ali Ghad would be a college for the Muslim elite of North India. It wouldn't distinguish on Shia, Sunni, or any other ground. Um, it wouldn't take into account Shia Sunni difference. The have Ahmed Khan himself was one of these, these great reformers who talked about the need for um, Muslims to neglect or forget their sectarian differences and, and work together. Um, so the usual narrative of of Aligarh, as with that of the whole kind of the whole Muslim League and the whole narrative of Muslim separatism, has been that it sort of constructed this overarching Muslim identity in which the identity of sect or individual school didn't matter. Um, and the book I guess argues that the opposite is the case, and that Aligarh becomes not just Adhigarh, but the wider kind of Muslim modernist project, becomes not a kind of cross-sectarian project, but actually a kind of Sunni-dominated modernist project, which cannot incorporate the needs of the Shia or other Muslim minorities. Let's give you a few examples of how this works in practice. um, A lot of the key sort of personages of the Adhigarh movement were seen by the Shia as being quite hostile to their needs. Um, One example is... uh, Karl al-Mulk, or Mushtaq Hussein, who, of course, for the Aligarh movement, was the, he was the secretary of Aligarh College in the early 20th century, but he was seen by many Shia as being a, a, a sort of virulent anti-Shia polemicist. He was based in Amroha, where he had made this, this name, really, as the kind of, um, as, if you like, the, sort of the representative of the Sunnis on the local municip- municipal laws. So, um, so it's, it's a much more complex story. And actually, if you look at a lot of the Aligarh-inspired modernist press in North India, what the book argues is that a lot of the kind of Aligarh, um, a lot of Aligarh activists were writing in this language of polemic against an old Muslim aristocracy, you know, the kind of old courtly elite who could have modernized. And the reality was that a lot of this Muslim elite happened to be Shia. So the point is that this kind of Muslim modernist agenda is overlapping quite strongly with a kind of anti-Shia polemic. So, for example, a lot of articles written in the North Indian Urdu Press um, Talked about the, you know the, the sort of you know the the backwards and unreformed Shia sides. You know the point here is that they are the old aristocracy, but as well they're being identified as Shia. So this simply serves to further push many Shia out of the Aligar movement. And as I agree in the book, you have a sort of Shia kind of counter-reform movement, which is emphasising the need for a Shia modernist education, but along separate lines. So the idea that the Shia need to sort of establish their own educational movements and schools. And you have several examples of this. Of course you've got the Shia Conference, which is attempting to set up various Shia schools and groups around the province and indeed around India. You have distinctly Shia educational anjumans, public organizations coming into being. Um, there's one called the Anjuman Esada de Vazivominim, like the you know the 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 uh, association for the scholarship of the you know the the community the readers and the followers, which is distinctly Shia, and you've got the Shia College, which while it is constructed under the language of modernist education, the whole point of it is that it, it comes about essentially out of hostility to Ali and out of the belief that the Shia can only safeguard their own interests in distinctly Shia educational institutions. So while this isn't one of the key themes of the book, it's, it's sort of it's sort of confined to one chapter. I guess one of the implications of the book is that the Aligarh movement doesn't only exist as we thought about it. It's not only a kind of, it's not merely a kind of Muslim reformist movement, but actually it's seen by certain Muslim minorities as being unable to incorporate their own identity um, and as being a kind of Sunni majoritarian movement. So the take on Aligarh is quite sort of distinct. That is, incidentally, the the theme that helped me get into this area of study. When when I started this project, I was looking primarily at, say, the Aligarh movement and the Muslim League and sort of how that related to Muslim minority interests. And as the study evolved, I started to go much more into the kind of Shia angle of the study and looking much more about the kind of dialogues and dialectics within the Shia community. So this is, is, if you like, where the research started. Um, And then the the whole project that came out of it became very different and much more wide-ranging.
2: Talking about the researcher, uh, how was it? I mean, what was the archival research like? Because well, you've used a lot of like you know non English sources so how was it
1: sure um I mean again when I started this research i mean this is a, this is a while ago now this began as a doctoral thesis back from about two thousand and three. I probably started um, and it evolved also during a kind of postdoctoral fellowship so it's you know over time it 's changed its shape consistently um, and, and, and greatly um a lot of the research fit, you know, the idea to start with was to construct a largely political study, I guess, looking at the, sheer, the emergence of a sheer political identity, which would, of course, be based on archives, newspaper sources, and so on as well. But when I was on fieldwork, uh, primarily in Lucknow, but also in other towns in UP, you know, um, Aligarh and Moradabad and other places like that, um, it seems to me to become much more interesting to, um, if I like, to, to, to sort of work out the internal workings of the community. And this stream much more closer to using Urdu sources. So a lot of the book is based on things like, um, you know, what are called sort of Rashail, um tracts and and treatises written by the community. So these include, um, you know, kind of instructive tracts, tracts teaching the Shia community how to live and sort of how to behave as Muslims. They include sort of, you know, um, literature about Muharram, um, books about, how to, you know, how Baharam should be regulated, but also sort of compilations and writings about the imams, um, Imam Hussein and Imam Ali, and, and this huge sort of wider kind of um, sort of network of Urdu literature. So, what I think ultimately the, the the book has tried to do is bring out this idea of very vibrant kind of Urdu public sphere um, in North India. And this has never really been looked at for the Shia, and I guess part of the reason is that the Shia has always been seen as this kind of Persianate uh, culture sort of rooted in this, you know, again, this sort of transnational traffic and, and sort of potentially communicating through Persian and so on. But really, of course, that's not the case. And most North Indian Shia would have been reading not in Persian, but in Urdu, or those who, who who could read or who did read. So the book is trying to sort of show how um, Shiism is, is sort of evoked and understood and presented through Urdu literature, And of course, this links back to what I was saying earlier about the idea of sort of Indian Shia identity. You know, essentially the main medium of communication in North India was not Persian at all, but it was Urdu. Um, so, the, the, the thesis is really looking consistently at the kind of themes and, and almost the kind of language that, that is coming out and how Shiism is being presented. And so, I, I look a lot at the kind of language... Um, again I mentioned earlier this idea of, of how the Shia community is articulated and presented. And there is a change over the period. It's increasingly moving towards talking about the Shia in, in terms like POM, you know, this idea of the of Shia of the Shia being a kind of easily identifiable and largely separate group. Now to go back to the field work a bit really, um again I, I started sort of working in archives, you know, working in Lucknow and Delhi and so on, but it's The more time I spent out there, the more it occurred to me that it became impossible to work on the Shia community um, as a whole. And really what I started to then try and do was sort of separate different sort of groups and factions within it. And the thing that really inspired me to do this was mixing with a lot of the Shia community within Lucknow itself. I mean, I won't mention any names, but when you talk to a number of the ulama who still work in Lucknow, many of whom are descended from the people who, who I talk about in the book, Or when you talk about many of the Shia sort of secular leaders or the leaders of Shia secular institutions in Lucknow, the relations among them are generally, well, are often very sort of difficult. They're often very antagonistic and very competitive and often actually very hostile. And I felt that if, if I, as an outsider working in Lucknow, could get a sense of the kind of politics within the community, then how intense must it be actually for those working within it? So from that point... I really started to try and separate out, you know, the idea that the Shia community even existed. Um, and I guess what the book is trying to do is, that, is argue that there is no such thing uh, as the Shia community at all. But what you've essentially got are these rival groups and these rival claims to influence within the community. Um,
2: and, yeah. and all these groups are just trying to claim that they're, like, representative of the Shia community, I guess.
1: Pretty much. Um, and, I mean, one of the key arguments of the book in, in that regard, I haven't really talked about this today, but I, I look in the book a great deal at sectarianism and shia Sunni conflict, and, and that was one of the main things I wanted to look at when I started doing the research for this. But the problem I really came across was that if there's no, you know, if the Shia community itself is so fractured and so riven with dispute and changing so much and so, you know, it's so hard to pin down, then how on earth can you talk about, the Shia and the Sunni as, is, is in any way, fixed communities. Um, and so the argument about sectarianism in the book, really, is it's, it's not to see it as a kind of result of a, of, of a Shia religious revivalism or a Shia community consolidation, because the point is that this Shia community never is consolidated. And so I try to take up the argument that sectarianism or Shia-Sunni debate is really, it's not the result of something, but it's, it's the kind of means to an end that, um, in a way, the Shia are ongoing, you know, they're engaged in this ongoing process of dispute and debate and talking about what it means to be Shia and what the community is like, and one of the ways in which they do this is by if you like contrasting Shiism with its opposite so a lot of Shia Sunni debate and, and, and dispute comes out of this, this attempt by the Shia to define themselves to talk about what it means to be Shia to to sort of establish a kind of basis community, which means a constant process of comparison with its opposite. Now, sort of further to that, one of the arguments of the book which is taken up in in all chapters, really, perhaps especially in chapter 2 and chapter 5, is that Shi'a Sunni conflict is partly a result of conflict between different groups within Shi'ism itself. Because what you have is through the 20th cent, well, late 19th, early 20th centuries, even up to today, really, um, you have this ongoing kind of attempts by particular Shia groups to establish their supremacy within the community, to establish their own leadership credentials. And part of the way in which they're always able to stake a claim is by, if you like, sectarian modes of communication, which are always good at getting, you know, they get sort of public coverage, they bring people to attention, you know, to always trying to say something a bit more controversial or to sort of push a particular religious ritual a bit further than anyone else is a way of establishing a kind of leadership claim within the community. So my argument is that a lot of Shia conflict comes about, sorry, a lot of Shia Sunni conflict comes about in this way, with particular Shia groups attempting to assert their own leadership role within Shiism, thereby adopting um, a sort of anti-Sunni um, language or form of practice as a way of doing this. Now this of course works both ways. You know, argue, I argue as well that that. You know, Sunni polemic against Shi'ism is very much rooted in the same thing. But the focus here is, of course, on the Shia community. And so the argument here is that you can't separate sectarianism from a study of how Shi'ism is changing in this period, which is why I've chosen to look at both together rather than just looking at Shi'ism or just looking at sectarianism.
2: Wow, Uh, we've covered a lot of ground here. (laughs) And you've taken up a lot of your time. But uh, one final question, Um, what are you working on currently?
1: Um, well, I mean, I continue to have some interest in shiism. I'm sort of I'm continuing to work on a few sort of offshoots of stuff of material covered in the book. So I'm working in particular on a couple of articles at the moment, which look at some of the key clerical families which are, who, who who emerge from this book. Uh, I mean, this book, as I've emphasised, is very much a sort of community-centred narrative, but I'd like to look. Uh, some of the individual scholarly networks coming out of this study, um, and how they're changing, and how, you know, sort of how they're communicating, and how they change the colonial period. Um, as well as that, I'm looking at various other studies linked to the North Indian ulama and the North Indian Muslim community more widely. Um, the bigger project I'm working on at the moment is on Muslim personal law um, in India, and how that evolves, and the kind of codification project that comes out of, out of the ulama during this period, I guess. Um, again, I, I got onto this subject through looking at the Shia um, and working with numerous groups in North India, which currently exist, like the Shia Muslim Personal Law Board. I published an article on personal law um, in Modern Asian Studies in 2010, which is again is taking a, a, a linked argument to the book, but looking at how sort of Shia groups and wider Muslim groups are interacting, but through the sort of realm of personal law as a kind of canvas on which these groups are asserting their own identities. So my hope in coming years is to develop this project on personal law in North India. Um, I'm also looking increasingly at the Sunni ulama. I'm looking at groups like Deobandis, um, in particular in terms of the kind of religious revivalisms and reforms coming around in this period. Um, and also I'm looking at sort of wider sort of Deobandi networks existing between North India and Afghanistan. Um, but this is this is this is work that will take me a long way down the line at the moment. Um, I mean, now at the moment I'm, I'm fairly new into a new teaching job, so I've been teaching quite heavily. So you know, I've, I've been working sort of on various articles and various interests, and I guess to some degree we'll see what develops out
0: of that.
2: Um, I'm sure you will be great, and uh, we'd love to have you back on the New Books Network. You know, whenever the next project is published. Um, in the meantime, thanks very much for doing this for us.
1: Well, thank you very much indeed, Tara. It's been been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: So, Fox, a lovely talk with a very enthusiastic academic. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.